It's an amazing story that we're working through. Uh, And it's a story that we well know. Uh, I suppose last week was a bit of a a surprise for many when we looked at the story of Judah and Tamar. And it was a really gritty, gruesome kind of story. And in all great storytelling uh, mechanisms, the narrator is taking us backwards and forwards between scenes. Uh, so the first scene that we saw first week was that Egypt, uh, Joseph was taken by his brothers. He was sold uh, to these traveling Ishmaelites uh, and he was taken to Egypt. And then it flips back and it takes us to see what's going on with Judah. And what we see with Judah last week, the, uh, the, um, the, the great, great, great whatever grandfather of the line of King David and ultimately Jesus is behaving in an incredibly deplorable, manipulative, offensive, terrible way. Uh, His treatment of his uh, daughter-in-law, the sexual challenges in that passage were massive. And then, in great storytelling way, we see ourselves flipped back to this chapter. Now we move uh, hundreds of miles Uh, to Egypt, where we see uh, the young Joseph arriving in probably what would have been the city of Thebes. Well, after all, you would, if you were going to trade goods, take your riches to the richest of the cities, wouldn't you? And so Joseph finds himself in the royal city, right at the center of the, uh, the, the, the center of civilization, at that particular point in history. I suppose we could say, really, that Joseph kind of finally arrived. We've finally got to Egypt, haven't we? We thought that this story is all about Joseph in Egypt. Well, we're finally there. What we read at the beginning is the, of this chapter is we see Joseph has been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. That's the opening phrase that we see in this particular chapter. Uh, Potiphar, we know that he was a very high-ranking official. He was the captain of the guard. Uh, I think, um, was it Andrew Lloyd Webber or whoever wrote the, mu- the musical said that he'd made a fortune selling shares in pyramids. Um, I'm not sure whether that's true, but the Bible says that he was captain of the guard. He was a high-ranking official. And Joseph arrives in Egypt. Let's stop for a minute. Because this verse, or these couple of verses, couldn't be more poignant than for today. Let's look at the reality. We have a 17-year-old youth who has basically been trafficked having been sold by his brothers into slavery. That's the reality of the situation. So let's just pause for a moment and and adjust ourselves from the glitzy, beautiful pictures of the story of Joseph down in Egypt to the grim reality that the hot-button issue in in the Western uh, Uh, civilization, particularly in Europe, is the issue of human trafficking and particularly the issue of refugees. I'm so thankful that we've been reminded in our notices of the opportunity to help those who are in desperate need who arrive with literally one set of clothes and that which they're wearing 
having been trafficked. That's what we see. That's what we're beginning to understand. But what the narrator wants us to also add into that, as we see Joseph in this predicament, he also wants us to add in and to think about where this story is located in the whole of the narrative of Genesis. Because what's at stake is this. Here's this young guy who's ended up in um, the foreign place of uh, the godless place, as far as the God of the Bible is concerned, uh, in Egypt rather than in Canaan with his father uh, and his, uh, the, the heritage that he had, the heritage of Abraham and Isaac, of Jacob, the recognition of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. The question is this, how will this young guy live when he ends up in this alien situation? You know, it's all well and good, isn't it? Joseph being consistent, being faithful, if you like, when he's surrounded by all of the support network that would encourage him to be. That's what we kind of see. We see his brothers are antagonistic towards him, and yet we see that he is loved by his father, Jacob. And Jacob has by this time, by this point in his life, through all sorts of kind of challenges and, and difficulties and, and um, rebellions in his own life and, and trying to kick over the traces and trying to manipulate, he's finally come to the point himself where he understands his relationship is with God of the Bible, Yahweh. He understands who that is. He understands his relationship, his place in the great promise that God has made to Abraham, that the, of his family, of his seed, there will be a great countless nation and that anybody who uh, blesses the people of Abraham will be blessed and anyone who curses them, they will be cursed. As though there is a, a great desire for God to portray, to placard, to witness himself in this world through this people group. And now we have a lone 17-year-old in Egypt. Look at how it continues, because it is astoundingly encouraging as we, we see what the narrator recounts for us. The Lord was with Joseph. That, what that says, Yahweh was with Joseph. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Here's this guy who appears to be sing uh, on his own, helpless, a slave. And yet that little phrase carries all of the power of the whole of the cosmos and beyond. The idea if God is with him, then no matter what his situation is, then God is with him. Even if he's in Egypt, even if he's been sold into slavery, no matter what the situation, the reminder that the narrator places in our thinking by that little phrase is, that the God of creation, the great I am, the one who has promised himself to Abraham already, he is with this youth. You're not forgotten, Joseph. That has profound implications for us today, doesn't it? What kind of God do we have? What kind of God has revealed himself to us? What kind of God do we know? In those darkest hours, in those moments of striking terror, in those moments of bleak 
fear. What kind of God does the Bible proclaim to us? A God who says, the Lord is with you. That promise is reiterated by Jesus. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll send the Comforter to be with you. You will never be alone. We, I guess, I'm not aware that any of us have been in the situation of Joseph. We, some of us might have been. We might have been through the horror of a situation like this. But what we are reminded here at this particular location is when we see that coming, we need to remind ourselves, what's God like? We don't actually have to be trafficked and sold into slavery and be, oh, the most horrendous of situations to feel a sense of loss, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of the darkness, if you like, closing in, as though there is no, I am so far from God at this moment in time. Will you hear me? The God of the Bible is a God who's promised He will be with you. Draw near to me, He says, and I will draw near to you. That's what I am like. One of the great milestones that we see repeated again and again through all of the narratives of the Bible is simply this. The God who is pro proclaimed in this book is a God who is faithful. He is a faithful God. He's not a God who, who kind of drifts to and fro. I've said that, but I might change. And it, it's all dependent on how I feel on a particular day or how you behave or whatever it might be. It's a God who has placed his love on his people and he says, I am a faithful God. And Joseph, as he is sold into slavery, and this guy who's been used to, up to now, he's been used to, um, a, a nomadic shepherding lifestyle finds himself thrust into the metropolis of Egypt. I, I wonder what it must have been like. He's used to walking around the desert and finding the odd tents and small holdings and maybe the odd stone uh, uh, enclaves. And here he finds himself surrounded by the majesty of Egypt. Incredible architecture. Color like he could never have imagined. How terrifying must that have been? And yet the Bible says the Lord was with him. How was he with him? The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Where did he end up finding himself? How did God bless him? He ended up actually in the house. He ended up visible. That's one of the blessings that God, in fact, one of the phrases that crops up again and again in this particular chapter. It, it, we don't see it so much in our English, but we can very easily see it in Hebrew. And we can pick it up. The idea of being seen, the idea of, of eyes on, is, is repeated again and again. And what we have is Joseph is eyes on in front of Potiphar. He actually ends up very visible in the house. This guy probably had slaves all over the place. 
Joseph could just as easily have been working out in the fields, never seen. He was just a, he was just a human commodity. And yet he ends up blessed by being in the house. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did, he put him in charge of his household and entrusted everything to his care. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Here we have this guy who has no commercial background. In fact, the narrator is insisting that in this strange language, Potiphar, a heathen, who probably had no knowledge of the God of Abraham, sees what's happening with this young man Joseph, sees the way things works out, work out in his life. And, and whether he absolutely tied the idea of Joseph's God to the blessing that was given to Joseph, he knew that there was something special going on here. He knew as far as a world which was surrounded by the, by the idea of divinity continually, the idea of the gods continually intervening in our lives, he looked and he saw, well, your God must be really blessing you and therefore I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on board with your blessing. That, that's, I'm with you. I, and, and he put Joseph in charge of everything. And, and as soon as he did that, he just ended up the most privileged guy, it seems to me. I mean, the equivalent, I guess, was that he could just go out on the golf course as much as he wanted. He could just go and chill. All he had to worry about was what to, the, the, the kind of almost the humor in the narrative is all he had to worry about was what to order for dinner. That's the way it describes it. All he had to worry about was what he was going to eat. Because there was just this amazing privilege on the work of Joseph, and Joseph was so faithful in that work, in the household of Potiphar, that there was amazing blessing. Why does the narrator tell us this? Why does it work out like this? Listen to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 22. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And anyone who blesses you, I will bless. What kind of a God have we got? The God who keeps his promises. And he says, if, you're, if, if anyone blesses you, even in the midst of slavery, I'll bless them. Why? So that you get a great kick out of it? So that you get elevated? What's the purpose of God blessing so that those who get on board would be blessed? In a world which lived with the idea of divinity, there would be an instant connection which would say, if I'm getting on board with that blessing, it's because I am connecting with their God. In a world which was just everywhere, surrounded by the idea of different gods, God is saying, I will declare myself. I will prove myself again and again and again to be the God who is the true living God. Against all of these other gods, I'll prove to be the true God. Because I will work it out. That's what the narrator is getting us to see. 
I will work it out. Why did he end up in the house of Potiphar? Why was he not out in the fields? Why was he not in the mines, wherever it might have been? Because God wanted him in that place so that he would be declared, so that God would be seen, so that this whole story would be able for us to see again and again, God is working. It's God who's working in the whole of this story. And so we see that the narrator is acknowledging the sovereignty of God and Joseph uh, lives a slave's life subject to his master and yet with incredible faithfulness. Then comes the temptation. Verse 6, so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. I mean, the, the language is astoundingly blunt. There's two words that are used where Potiphar's wife says, come to bed with me. Those two words are never used in the ancient Hebrew in connection with married relationship. They are always connected with lust and sex. And so here we have Potiphar's wife who notices Joseph and says, come to bed with me. And I guess that what we're beginning to understand a little bit more and what I think opens up a greater picture on this, a greater understanding of this, is that we, we are beginning to understand the incredible power that Potiphar's wife had to play over Joseph. He was in an incredibly vulnerable situation. Astoundingly vulnerable. Here's Potiphar's wife who's saying, come and have sex with me. What is his option? He is in a no-win, isn't he? She is astoundingly powerful. We would go as far as to say now that what she was attempting was, would be described these days as male or rape of a male. Not because she would be literally, physically holding him down, but because the emotional power, the relationship power that she has over this young man, relatively younger man, number of years on, probably in his early 20s, late, late teens, early 20s, the power that she has renders him helpless in this situation. That's the kind of relationship that Joseph finds himself in. So the temptation is surrounded in all sorts of ways. There's a temptation of, of just physical activity, of course, sexual activity. There's the temptation to believe that the power of Potiphar's wife is greater than the power of the God who he believes in. There's another power, another temptation. How often do we face that kind of temptation when we're facing difficulties, when we're facing challenges, and what's at stake is quite simply this. Is the power that I am facing now greater than the power of the God that I believe in? That's temptation. Am I going to be faithful to the God who I believe in because I believe that He will keep me, come what may, or am I going to succumb to this because I believe that this is a bigger power. 
Joseph was astoundingly vulnerable at this moment in time. And the way that the narrator describes this is it's really beautifully put. Against the two-word bluntness of Potiphar's wife, we have Joseph's response. It's a whole... It's a whole diatribe, isn't it? With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is trusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? What an amazing statement that we see from this young guy. It's it's as though he gets a blunt demand, really, from a woman of power, and his response is full. He, he, He wants to reason with her, doesn't he? He wants to say, look, I am powerful in this house, but you're my master's wife. I couldn't do that. There's something that that's, that's crossing a line that I have not been given the right to cross. I can't do that. And so he, he, the narrator fills his words out. And the outcome, as we see, is that she goes on and she goes on and she goes on. She spoke to Joseph day after day after day. He refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her day after day after day relentless. And one day when he went into the house to attend to his duties, none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Some of the commentators um, have indicated, some of them think that in the culture of the ancient world in Egypt, which was a very, very different culture, to the culture that we live in. Tutankhamun, for example, was married to his sister, uh, and they had they, they, two stillborn children, two daughters, I think. Uh, and the idea was that it was, a, it was a good thing to marry your sister because it would maintain that royal bloodline. Uh, sex was thought of in a very different way. Um, the relationship between husband and my wife was for, thought about in a very different way. The idea of Potiphar's wife sleeping with a a slave boy would probably, according to some commentators, probably not have been all that problematic. For her to do that would probably have not been all that problematic. What would have been problematic is what she then accuses Joseph of doing. She then accuses him of coming in and trying to rape her. That's what she accuses of him. Uh, And as as she shouts out to the servant staff, uh, I guess the fact that it seems as though because she's been refused, she hates it. She hates it. Uh, And so she now creates an environment where if he'd have simply said yes, it probably wouldn't have been a big deal. But because he said no, because he refused her, The the environment is created where she ends up accusing him of coming into her and trying it on with her. She accuses, she then elevates, kind of just blows the thing out of all proportion by saying, not only have you 
uh, come in and started to play sport with me, is the words that are used, but you play sport potentially with all of the staff. And then she accuses her husband, you've brought him in. You've brought him in. And the outcome of which is that Joseph ends up from that elevated position to being thrown into prison. And he ends up back, really, to the worst of the worst. He ends up from a pit in the desert, sold to slave traders, sold into Egypt, elevated to the the first in command below the master of the house, and then, because of a false accusation, he ends up dead again, essentially. He's in the dungeon. He's in the king's dungeon. And the prospect of getting out is negligible. That is where he is going to end his days, it would seem. And yet, what do we see? Or kind of bracketing this whole story, you ask the question, where are you, God? You know, I can see that you were with Joseph when you were elevating him. Oh, oh, that, that, that makes sense. I see that you were blessing him. I see that you were with him when everything was going incredibly well. In fact, how often do we trans, uh, translate the, the good things in life as an indication that God is with us? And then as soon as it falls apart, we say, well, I must have done something back there, or God isn't with me. And yet what we see here, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He's never left him. He was there with him when he was in the pit. He was there with him when he was sold into slavery. He was there with him when he was elevated. He's there with him when he's thrown into the dungeon again. That is the promise of God. Is that everything? Is that all that we can see from this story? I actually think there are three incredible things that we can pick up. The first is this. An amazing, incredible contrast between the previous chapter of Judah. If we remember the story of Judah, he sleeps with a prostitute not realizing it that, that it's his daughter-in-law. And Joseph, who's had sex demanded of him, refuses. What an amazing contrast. That's why Judah is there in the previous chapter. Because the narrator is saying, what kind of people are we going to sh- describe to you? We're going to describe this kind of person. We're going to describe a Judah who is not a slave, and yet he lives enslaved to his passions. The one who doesn't look as if he's in slavery is in slavery. He's the one who's held. He's the one who's held captive by his passion, by his lust, by his desires. He is enslaved. And then we're going to show you Joseph. The one who is enslaved a slave, and yet he lives as though he's free. He lives as though he's free. 
Because when somebody of power and authority comes to him and demands something of him which crosses a line and he understands the line that's being crossed, he lives free. He says, no. It's an incredible story. How? By God's grace. God working in Joseph at that point in time. What else do we see? We see reinforced what was portrayed at the very beginning of the story. The very beginning of the story, if you remember it, it's the bit that we always describe Joseph as the spoiled, impetuous youth. He goes to his father and he brings a report of his brothers that are away and out of sight of the father and the lives that they are living out of sight of the father. And then we have in the next chapter a description of how Judah does live when he's out of sight of the father, just so that we know what the rest of his brothers are like. And then we have Joseph who is out of sight of his father. And how does he live? He lives a life of righteousness. He lives a life which is marked by his faithfulness to Yahweh. He says, I I believe in Abraham's promise. I believe in the promise that went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, my father. I believe in all of that. I believe that we are called to be faithful worshippers of Yahweh. And I will live according to that. That's how he lives. When he's out of sight of his father, when the pressure comes on, when everything starts to militate against any possibility of him being faithful, he's the one who lives not as a slave. Isn't that an amazing contrast? But the key is this what does he actually understand? You see, his response to uh, Potiphar's wife is astounding, really. He gives her, gives her a whole description of all of the blessing that has been given to him, but that she is separated from that blessing. She is uniquely Potiphar's wife. And then he says, How then could I do such a thing and sin against God? Sin against God. And you say, hang on a sec, surely if you did that, you'd be sinning against Potiphar, wouldn't you? Well, yes, but he understood something way deeper. He understood that our our unfaithfulness, our rebellion, our lives of rebellion against God are the real thing. Yes, it's worked out as we rebel against each other, as we do the things that are self-serving as we do the things which are unrighteous. Yes, we do all of those things in this world, but he understood, he got it clear in his mind that when I sin, when I, when I stand rebellious, ultimately my transgression is against God. David says exactly the same in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight when he recounts the incident of, uh, with Bathsheba and her husband. And you think, but Joseph, you, uh, David, you, you sinned against Bathsheba and her husband and, and all sorts of other people are drawn into your, unfaithful, your unfaithfulness and yet he knows. That's all true. That is all true. 
All of my sin is against other sinners. Yes, that, and I am, I am culpable for that. But ultimately, my sin is against a sinless God. What an amazing portrayal we see in this guy, Joseph. Is that it? Is that it? I think there's just a little bit more. You see, what we see is a contrasting morality, don't we? A contrasting righteousness. An unrighteousness and a righteousness. In fact, what we actually see is is Joseph is portrayed as perfect. Now, Joseph isn't perfect. (laughs) He isn't. But the way the narrator constructs the story is he describes Joseph in righteous terms right the way through. In contrast to the unrighteous brothers. Because the narrator, by the incredible divine work of God, is preparing us for another brother. He's preparing us for another brother who comes into this world. And we look at those two, and if we're really honest we would probably, most of us, say, I want to live like Joseph, but I know that I live more like Judah. That's the reality. That's if we're honest about our hearts. It, you know, we, we, we live less faithful rather than more faithful. We live with failure. Yes, Joseph, absolutely is an example of how to live, but the reality is, again and again, in so many ways, we live unrighteously. And Joseph is portrayed as the great righteous brother. The great righteous brother. The one who is faithful in the face of temptation when the other brothers are unfaithful in the face of temptation. Does that take our minds anywhere? I think it should. It should take our minds, because we sit where we are in history, it should take our minds to Jesus. Because Jesus is the great brother. Jesus is the great brother who comes into this world and in the face of all sorts of temptation, He is the one who delivers consistently, faithfully, the way Joseph is portrayed. He's the one who comes and is faced with temptation. He's the one who comes into this world as though he looks like a slave and yet he lives free. Why? Because he knows that all of us are enslaved. All of us are enslaved. Judah was the one who looked like he was free, but the reality was that he was enslaved. Here we are. We like to think we're free, and yet our hearts tell us we are enslaved. We're enslaved to our passions, to our desires, to our self-centeredness, to manipulating everything to work out the way we would want it, or to be so incredibly good in so many ways so that a little bit of that glory might kind of be reflected back on us and we might be thought well of, because we have corrupt hearts. That's That's my assessment of me. 
That's my assessment of me. That's my assessment, according to the Bible, of all of us. We live enslaved. And yet, we have an older brother who is faithful. What an amazing picture. What an incredible picture. How was it that Joseph is portrayed in this way? Because the Lord was with him, being Jesus, when he was here in this world, by the power of the Holy Spirit, how did he live according to the way he lived? Because he was in constant relationship with his Father in heaven. Because his Father was with him. I guess the question remains, if we've got a little picture up to now, a preparation, if you like, a golden stepping stone on the journey to Jesus, telling us what we really need, portraying to us our true unfaithfulness in the light of true faithfulness, is it possible that the journey of Joseph will take us to the point of him describing salvation? We'll see in the next few weeks.